Beware, beware, the Ides of March. Welcome to the March of History. It is March 15th, the Ides of March, and the anniversary, I don't know how many years, over 2,000 years ago that Julius Caesar was stabbed to death, uh, I think 23 times. So a momentous day for the March of History podcast to be recording on the anniversary of Julius Caesar's death. I am your co-host, Trevor Furness. And co-host, Brennan Furness. And we're here today to bring you another episode of the March of History and the next segment of Julius or Gaius Julius Caesar's life. So we had left off last week talking about Julius Caesar. He's Aedile. He had had this big showdown with the arch bony or arch optimate Catullus about the statues of Marius, and he had made that big speech to the people, and he had won out, and people supported him. And I said that next week we're going to get into my, or one of my favorite stories about Julius Caesar. I have it all written out in the outline. There's a lot of information to cover, though, so I don't know if we're going to get to that today. If not today, then it'll be next episode, but we're going to try to cover it all in one episode, and we'll see how that goes. Fair enough, Brennan? Sounds good. All right. So... The next couple of things, it's almost it's tough to find a timeline because a lot of the ancient sources, they don't always put years, or, and they definitely don't put 64 BC because they didn't keep track of time that way. But I'm doing my best to order them. So at some point, there's one source, Suetonius, that mentions that Caesar tries to get himself put in charge of Egypt as a province when there's, I guess, some kind of, I believe, rebellion against the king that the Romans had chosen as a puppet. But Egypt is kind of like a, a hot-button issue for the Romans because it's known to be so rich and so wealthy that no politician can contemplate the idea of allowing another politician to gain control of Egypt because it would bring with them so many clients and so much wealth that would be absurd. So they'd rather do nothing about it than allow anybody to take charge of it. So I, I don't get it. I mean, who... They must still run it. It's part of their... It's uh, not part it's of the part, empire yet. Oh, it's not part of the empire yet. No, okay, so at, uh, at this point, they... Got a, got a puppet king. Okay, so are they still paying royalties to Rome, or are they completely unassociated? I think that's part of the reason, They rose up, and they weren't doing that anymore. Okay, got it. So it was an outcry against the Alexandrians who had just opposed their king, although the Senate had recognized him as an ally and friend of Rome. However, the optimate party opposed the measure. So Caesar, and he goes on to say some other things, but essentially, yeah, they rose up and overthrew the king that the Romans had chosen. That's according to Suetonius. It's not a big thing you need to remember. It's just a story I thought I'd mention. Later on, you'll see Crassus tries to get himself put in charge of Egypt too, and even he's not able to do it. Now, in 64 BC, this is still when Caesar's aedile. One thing we haven't talked about yet is that there is a big overflow in the murder courts. And typically, the next level up from Adile, Praetor, would handle all the law courts. The Praetors are overwhelmed because it's big overflow. So times like this, they start making the Adiles handle some of the overflow. So it gives Caesar an opportunity to preside as judge over some of the murder courts. And why is this happening? You know, Why is this overflow happening? This is partially or entirely due to one man Caesar's great lifelong enemy and opposite, Marcus Portius Cato. Now, Cato's quaestor this year, 
And Brennan, you remember we talked about the Quaestors handle the treasury and a lot of the finances for the empire. It's a junior post. It's the first rung on the ladder of the Senate. People are usually around 30 years old when elected. What is it Cato is doing that's holding up these murder courts as a quaestor who handles the treasury? Well, most quaestors come in and there are a permanent number of clerks that work in the treasury. And the quaestors don't bother the clerks and let them do their job. And they're there year after year. Whoever gets elected, it's the same clerks. And, you know, the quaestors do their job. They're just there to be politicians and to make a name for themselves. And the clerks do a lot of the brunt of the labor, right? Cato doesn't see it that way. I, I remember hearing a story that Cato studied for, like, I don't know, a year and a half and ended up becoming quaestor late because he wanted he wouldn't take the position until he fully understood all the responsibilities. And Cato is known to be a slow study, but a determined studier. You know, he, he wouldn't let it go until he had the full knack of it. And Cato's taking his duties very seriously, and he's rigorously digging into all the books and asking a whole bunch of questions of the clerks, and the clerks don't appreciate this. And the clerks, they're, they're shocked at Cato's rigor and his knowledge of the workings of the Office of Quaestor and the Treasury in general. And they're not at all happy about his intrusions. The way they see it, there's a normal way things operate, and Cato's bucking the system, and they don't like it. So they actually try to get some of his other quaestors to block him. Cato, in a typical Cato move, strikes back by firing the most senior of these permanent clerks, and he prosecutes another on charges of fraud. And this is how Cato operates his entire life. He's the exact opposite of Caesar. Caesar's all about making connections, making friends with people, making people like him, charm him, or charming them. Cato's the opposite. He's not there to make friends. You know, he, he's firing one clerk, he's prosecuting another, he, he's not there to make people like him. He doesn't really care if anybody likes him or not. So now, Cato, he's a, a controversial figure, right? But I mean, while he's not making friends, it, he's defending these principles, right? I mean, in the case where he's firing the clerks and the, the senior clerk and charging them, are these charges valid? Like, is he... Oh, yeah, they're they, probably valid, yeah. So, I mean, from what I can tell, I mean... He's just actually enforcing the law versus these other guys are just going by this broken system and prolonging it and just trying to sustain it. Yeah, I mean the other guys are basically saying like corruption is the grease that makes the world work and Cato lives in this ideal world where corruption shouldn't exist, right? And most people that had these you know kind of ideals, when they're confronted with the harsh reality, they lose that, a lot of that idealism. But Cato was a harsh guy, and he wasn't about to lose any idealism. He, you know, he's going to force other people to live in his world, not learn to live in their world. And what I thought it was interesting about this was you hear about politicians nowadays, and I'd never heard this when I was younger, but nowadays in the year 2020, you always hear people talk about, oh, the deep state this and the deep state, and the deep state today is considered to be the government officials that work year after year unelected in the government and they watch politicians who are elected come and go and you know when the politicians do something that they don't like they just kind of wait them out because you know they don't have a term limit it's not necessarily bad it's just you know it is what it is and the name for it today the catchphrase has been called deep state and here you have a politician way back in ancient rome fighting what today we would refer to as the deep state so i thought that was an interesting relevance to today's world you know, he's fighting these clerks that are there year after year and are just saying, hey, you're going to be out of here in a year. We got to work here forever. Leave us alone. But they're not but they're not elected. 
Right. So, I mean, from what I can tell, Cato is, especially given the context of, you know, what eventually happens to the Republic. I mean, Cato seems to be a hero of the, the Republic. Uh, and I wonder why people wouldn't have seen it that way, given that there was a the context of the Roman Republic was that they don't they they want to stay a republic. They don't want to return to a a kingdom uh, ruled by one person. Yeah, no, and and the people do like all these things that he's doing. He makes a name for himself. Every politician's job was to make a name for themselves, and Cato and Caesar do that in quite opposite ways. Cato is known for being very austere. He doesn't wear a tunic beneath his toga. He walks around barefoot. He refuses to to ride horses anywhere. Like if his colleagues ride horses, he runs alongside them, <laughs> or like walks alongside them very quickly. And they said he could keep up no problem. Cato dresses very plainly. He eats very plainly. But by doing all this, he's not being a plain guy. He's standing out from the pack, right? He's he's making a name for right. himself as a uni- unique individual. People know who he is. It makes him stand out. Now Caesar stands out in the exact opposite ways. He's flamboyant. He dresses wildly. You know, he's always on the cutting edge of style. He's loud and he's, uh, you know, friendly with the people and he's, you know, with the cool set and he, he probably dances and, and he doesn't drink and he eats very strictly like Cato does, but in everything else, he's the exact opposite. But both of them are making, they're making images for themselves that stand out from the pack, right? Right. Yeah. Two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And, I mean, it re- Caesar really is that unstoppable force, and Cato really is that immovable object. Cato has a certain way things should be, and he doesn't want to move from that, and Caesar's trying to change the Republic. Cato doesn't want to. Well, Cato, I shouldn't say that. Cato does want to change the Republic, but he wants to change it back to what it, he sees that it was. And as Cicero said, Cato believes that, or he speaks as if we live in Plato's Republic, not Romulus's cesspool, where I've heard shithole too. <laughs> So wait, he thinks they should be in the cesspool, or they? He just thinks that Cato operates in a in a false reality. Oh, I see. He thinks that they're operating in in this philosophical ideal, not the the cesspool they actually are in. Exactly. But that will be Cato's problem. It's the, Cato's intentions are never bad, but sometimes Cato, I think, causes more problems for the Republic through his uncompromisingness than. Anybody like Caesar does, and I mean that that'll come clear later on. Uh, I think it's even Cicero says that oh, he says something along the lines that like one Cato can be worse than a thousand Caesars, or, Caesars or something along those lines, or maybe a thousand. I don't know if he says Caesars or something else. I'm definitely butchering that quote. But Cato can be equally good or bad for the Republic because he refuses to compromise whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it's a clever way to put it: a thousand Caesars or or one. Cato, or in other words, he's saying, I guess the Cato would be worse. But, but if they were, if you were to flip that, if there are a thousand Catos and they all agree with each other, then maybe it would have been a, a long last republic. Well, if they all, so, but that's the thing. Cato <laughs> saw his way as being the only way, and nobody else had any valid views on things. He he was so uncompromising; it's it's absurd, you know. It wasn't like. He was willing to hear you out on, hey, Cato, I think you're you're interpreting this wrong, or I don't think things were really like that back in the day in the Republic. He had he was not listening to anybody about anything, right? But he did get a lot of admirers working this way, and I'll find the exact quote for next time, or I'll, I'll try to remember to do that. But the other thing that Cato was doing, the other very popular thing that he was doing, 
was he was going into anomalies left over from Sulla's dictatorships, anomalies in the treasury, money that had been borrowed that hadn't been paid back by Sulla's cronies, things like that. And specifically, he's looking into who helped or who got paid to prescribe people. Remember, the prescription lists were the lists Sulla posted in Rome of all the people that it was legal for any citizen to kill and bring their head to Sulla, and Sulla would pay them out money and then seize their property. And so he started going through these lists in the treasury of who had been paid out for, for prescriptions. And he started naming these men publicly and demanding that they pay back this blood money they had made off the state. And once he did this, I mean, he's very popular among the people. Everybody still didn't like the fact that prescriptions had even happened, but I think nobody was brave enough to bring this up to, you know, the still heavily controlled by the Solon regime government. But Cato has no fear like that. You know, he's going to let them know what he thinks. And when he does this, or actually, I should go back a little bit. What Cato's doing might not even be legal is the thing, though. Because Sola was dictator when he did this, and he passed a law that granted these people immunity for killing these proscribed peoples. One of the things about why you make somebody a dictator is that Everything that you do as a dictator, you can't be prosecuted for after your year in office. The Romans had a thing where if you're in office, you can't be prosecuted. And once you're out of office, you can be prosecuted for what you did in office, which is an odd thing that I believe Italy still does today. Yeah, I remember is, hearing something about yeah, that. Yeah, which is why Berlusconi didn't want to lose office. And for the same reason, a lot of Roman politicians never wanted to lose power once they got too high because everybody was coming for their throats and trying to take them down. And the only way to stave off all these prosecutions was to stay in office. So it made these guys cling to power all the harder. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because it causes these people who are breaking the wall to, to stay you know, in the positions of the people that are making the wall. Yeah. I guess the idea would be that they don't want people to be able to hold up the magistrate in their legally appointed duties by just throwing out like random lawsuits at them while they're in office. So they can yeah. only do it once they're out of office. But the real way things work is not quite like that. So these people probably shouldn't have been able to be prosecuted. But, I mean, everybody agreed that legal or not, what these guys did was pretty bad. You know, they're, they're chopping off fellow citizens' heads to get paid by Sola. You know, like that's that's not, no good. So everybody cheers Cato on for this. And once he does this and he starts naming these guys publicly, the prosecutors in Rome smell blood in the water. And they start charging all these named people with murder and taking them to the murder courts, which is why there's such an overflow of people and why Caesar ends up in charge of some of the murder courts. Make sense? Yeah. Now, Caesar welcomes the idea of presiding over these trials after his experience in the prescriptions. You know, you'll remember back, it's, it's a number of episodes back now, but Caesar was 16 years old. Sola told him to divorce his wife. Caesar said no. Sola put him on the prescription list. And Caesar had to run from friend's house to friend's house, hiding out in you know back alleys and cellars, gets malaria. Some, some guys find him. He just you know narrowly escapes and gets forgiven by Sola and, and runs away to the east. But he had a very hard time of it, and that was when he was 16 years old. So he's all about prosecuting these people, right? It's also another chance for him to be associated with the popular movements or a popular movement going on. You know, this is a movement of the people. The people are heavily supporting it, and now he's associated with it. 
you know, I'm, I'm sure it seems genuine to the people too, because I mean, I'm not sure to what extent they knew that he was on these prescription lists and that he narrowly escaped, but it, oh, they, I'm, sure I'm sure that they that, knew. He made them know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that that would have been good rhetoric, uh, for getting people to see him as being sincere and, and fighting for something that, you yeah, know, that he believes him. in. Exactly. That's a yeah, great point. Yeah. It. This doesn't seem like real politic. This seems like something that he, that actually affected him. Just like when he supported Pompey in the pirates, he had, you know, faced pirates and it was something that meant something to him. Adrian Goldsworthy in his book, Caesar life of a Colossus says that quote, or that Caesar was, quote, enthusiastic in the condemnation of men whose guilt was anyway attested to by the official treasury records, end quote. Essentially saying that these guys' names were in the treasury records as having received money for these murders. There's not much doubt on their guilt. You know, their name didn't get put there for no reason. Right, yeah. So it's, there's no ambiguities. It's a good position to take against them because you know you have this proof that uh, they did – Absolutely do the, the crime. Yeah. And now Caesar's a judge. He's not the jury. He can't just decide the case. But he can certainly be biased and you know help the one side over the other, which he probably does. But Caesar does avoid going after personal vengeance because a, a guy is brought before the court, Cornelius Phagitis, or it's P-H-A-G-I-T-E-S. I don't know how you say that. Phagites? Phagitis? This was the officer in Sola's army that had found Caesar along with a few of his soldiers when Caesar was 16 years old and bedridden from malaria, felt like he was on his deathbed, and this guy and his troops find Caesar, and they're going to kill him. Caesar manages to convince them, even in his weakened state, that they should take a bribe from him and let him go, and he pays him an enormous sum of one talent. And so this guy is brought before the court, and Caesar says that Cornelius had fulfilled his part in the bargain, and Caesar never neglected anyone who had aided him. Essentially saying that, hey, I paid this guy for service to let me go, and he did that exactly that. I'm not now going to turn around and prosecute him for doing that. You know, had he not done that, I'd be dead right now. So it's an interesting way of, of seeing the world by for Caesar, and I think he wanted the world to know that, hey, he honors his word and he honors his bargains. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of political factors or um i mean other than just you know does he like this guy or not i'm sure he doesn't like the guy but uh, i'm sure it's you know has much better optics if he forgives the guy but also just he i'm sure he doesn't want to make more enemies this guy tried to kill him once doesn't want to try to uh kill him again that's that's interesting i mean caesar he seems to have never had any issue with making enemies he made enemies left and right which i guess i should kind of rephrase what i said earlier about him always wanting to make friends uh, he didn't mind making controversy. He didn't mind pissing people off, but he did like to – he would rather be liked than not liked, and I guess that's what I'm saying. But I don't think that he particularly liked this man. I think he probably disliked him immensely, but the way he saw it, you know, he had fulfilled his part of the bargain, and Caesar had gotten away. So to turn around and then prosecute him would be wrong in Caesar's mind, and he didn't want to create the optics of – hey, this is just Caesar out to get retribution for personal wrongs people have done him, right? You kind of lose the high ground then. Yeah. So that gives Caesar some experience in the courts. I just thought it was a story that kind of gives you a better idea of who Cato is and who Caesar is and the way they see the world. And that was 64 BC when Caesar was an aedile. The next year, 63, Caesar's very active 
in a number of court trials, actually one of them that I didn't even include in the outline, he ends up defending, I think it's the son of King Juba of somewhere in Africa. And there's a few stories throughout Caesar's life. He's usually so calm and measured, but a few stories where he loses his temper and snaps. And in this particular case, he's arguing he gets so angry at the king who's on the other side. I guess it's like Caesar's defending his son and the king and the son were having a fight in the Roman law courts. And Caesar ends up yanking on the king's beard <laughs> mid-trial. Really? causes a whole big ruckus. Was that something that you did back then? Yank on someone's beard? Or is that <laughs> something – is that like if someone yanked on someone's beard today, you'd think, wow, what's, <laughs> what's going on here? Well, the Romans never had beards at this time in the Republic. Uh, that uh, was a sign of barbarians. They were all clean-shaven. Oh, no wonder he was yanking on it. Yeah, so maybe you're just trying to show this guy with some foreign barbarian. So I'm going to read a quick part from Adrian Goldsworthy's book. He goes, quote, In the coming months, Caesar prosecuted Gaius Calpurnius Piso, an ex-consul who had recently returned from governing Cisalpine Gaul. Amongst the charges of extortion and maladministration was the accusation that he had unjustly executed a Gaul from the Po Valley. Once again, Caesar was championing the cause of the inhabitants of this region but with no more success than his previous efforts. Piso was successfully defended by Cicero, who added the autoritas of his current office to his formidable oratory. He was consul at the time. He goes on, Yet the fact that Caesar had brought the case, and doubtless also the skill and enthusiasm with which he pressed it, earned him the lasting enmity of Piso. Later in the year, Caesar appeared on behalf of a Numidian client, a young nobleman who was trying to assert his independence from King Heimsbal, or Heimsal. The king's son, Juba, was present in exchanges that became increasingly heated. At one point, Caesar grabbed Juba by the beard. It may have been that the deliberate gesture of an orator seeking to exploit most Romans' latent xenophobia, but is more likely to have been genuine, a genuine burst of anger. For all Caesar's impeccable manners and aristocratic poise, this was the guest who graciously accepted even the humblest hospitality and criticized his companions when they complained. Throughout his life, he was prone to occasional bursts of temper. Whatever his motive, the dispute was settled in favor of the king. Caesar did not abandon his client, but kept him hidden in his own house until he was able to smuggle him out of Rome. So I had that story a bit wrong, but that's what happened. So he's still fighting these law cases where, were, where he's not winning, but he's making a name for himself. And he's still defending many people that are without rights in Rome. Okay, and what's that at the end? He smuggles the... Yeah, rather than give the guy, the guy up to the the prosecutor or the other side, because what, he was defending who? He was defending a Numidian client, a young nobleman who was trying to assert his independence from the king. So instead of giving him up to the king, Caesar lets him stay in his house in Rome until Caesar is able to smuggle him out of Rome to safety rather than being thrown in some dungeon by the king. So Caesar looks out for his clients is basically what he's telling the world. Okay. And so the king whose who's beard he grabbed, that's That his. was the prince, the okay. king's son, who's representing the king's interests. Okay. Got it. It's not really an important case, but again, it just kind of gives a little personality flavor. Now – the next case in that same year that comes up with Gaius Rabirius, 
it's one of the more confusing episodes in Caesar's life. So I'm going to do my best to explain it in the simplest terms possible, but it's not a simple issue. But let's take a crack at it. So Caesar instigates a man named Titus Labianus, and that is his name, Titus Labianus. What a name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the great name for history. He actually becomes Caesar's future legate when he becomes when he starts fighting in Gaul, modern day France, kind of his right hand man and his great military mind in his own right. Yeah, what's what is it, a legate? Is that it is just a right hand man or that's yeah, it's a... exactly like it's exactly that. It's okay. you know, hand chosen by the proconsul as his right hand man in the province. And he's the one junior officer or the one subordinate that Caesar trusts more than anybody. But that's many years in the future. Right now, you know, they're probably just meeting each other. But Caesar instigates Titus Labianus to, among other things, prosecute a man named Gaius Rabirius, who is described as an aging and undistinguished senator. And they're going to prosecute him for a crime he allegedly committed 37 years earlier. This is not a recent thing, so already it's a little bit odd, right? Yeah. So what do they charge him with? They charge him with an archaic charge called... Perdulio. They charge him with Perdulio, which is uh, equivalent to high treason. But this is not the common law used in Rome. In fact, it dates back to the time of the kings, some 400 years before the time of Julius Caesar. And the required punishment if found guilty of Perdulio is crucifixion. And crucifixion was no longer done to citizens by the time of Caesar's day. You know, it's still used on slaves and foreigners, but not citizens. So this is something that Caesar just grabbed out of, like, the ancient past. And think about how old that is. That's a law that's, you know, 400 years old. If you live in the U.S., our country is not even that old yet. You know, it's almost twice yeah. as old as, as the U.S. So, I mean, it's kind of – it's a bizarre law. So everybody's wondering, what is he doing here, you know? He's charging this guy under this ancient law for a crime that happened 37 years ago. Now, Caesar's not the one actually challenging this in court. It's this guy, Titus Labianus, but everybody knows that Caesar's behind it. Titus Labianus doesn't think things through you know, this well. It's too clever for him, basically. And the other thing is there was a current murder court set up specifically for cases like this. They choose not to use that court and use this old version of the law instead. And the alleged crime is as follows, that two men named Saturninus and Glaucia – 37 years ago, had and their, and their supporters were accused of leading a revolution against Rome back then. And the Senate passes a law called the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, or the Ultimate Decree, instructing Marius, Caesar's uncle at the time, who was consul, and his fellow consuls to protect the republic by any means necessary, which means including killing citizens without trial. Now, this guy, Rabirius, the guy being accused of the crime, was among the men who followed the consuls to go massacre the supporters of Saturninus and Glaucia. Right? You following so far? Okay. Saturninus and Glaucia were the, were the two that were – they were kind of rabble-rousers back in the day and were getting the citizens all fired up and you know the Senate felt they were plotting against the government. So they gave – they passed this decree, this consensus – this ultimate decree that allowed the consuls uh, essentially like martial law – they, they could even put people to death without trial, even citizens, if they needed to, anything to protect the state. And the guy, Rabirius, goes with them to try to put down 
Saturninus and Glaucia and their supporters. And oh. Labienus's uncle was among the victims who died during this whole scuffle. So now you see where Labienus is coming from. He's getting some sympathy because he is avenging his murdered uncle that never got justice, right? Romans were all about family. So they could see this and sympathize with it. He's being the good nephew, even though it was Caesar pulling the strings. Sure. So Marius rounds these guys up, the ones that they haven't killed, and puts them in the Senate house and accepts their surrender. But then a big mob gathers of citizens and start climbing onto the roof of the Senate house and throwing shingles down onto the people, you know, the prisoners in the Senate house and rocks and end up killing a bunch of them. Jeez. And then there's even a story that Rabirius displays Saturninus's head at dinner later at a dinner party, but that is a, a later source, and so we don't think that that's likely, but you never know. <laughs> now, why why did Caesar have any interest in this? The point was not to find Rabirius guilty of this crime. He didn't care anything about Rabirius. The guy was unimportant. The point was to show how dangerous that the how dangerous the ultimate decree was to the liberties of Roman citizens. They didn't dispute the Senate's right to pass the decree or the consul's right to obey this decree, but more how it was implemented. So when Saturninus and Glaucia and their supporters surrendered, and they were no longer threats to the state, did they get their rights back? You know, Marius and the consuls are empowered to defend the states at all costs and can even put citizens to death if they're a threat to the state. But once these guys have surrendered, shouldn't they get their rights as citizens back? In essence, their right to a trial if they're accused of treason. And these guys didn't get that right. They got murdered, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, what's the context here? How did Caesar – I mean, so he's going into this trial trying to test this law, not the law itself, but how it gets – executed once um once it's enacted so i mean how would he even know that they're going to execute this this law in a way that is distasteful to the to the new this newer room that doesn't crucify people um their own citizens when they're not actively armed i mean how did he know that this would happen was there some context that no that's you know, a good point this? i don't know exactly all i can say is that he, i mean he had a great political IQ, you know, and he, and he saw this law in the books and he, he had seen how it had been used in the past and he felt that this law was dangerous and needed to be pointed out to the rest of the senators that this is something that's bad and you, you can tell them all you like, but you know, only so many people are going to listen to you. And so he said, okay, I'll show you how dangerous this law is. So he chose, uh, he, he holds this whole trial to try to prove a point you know, and to draw attention to the fact that this law needs to be kind of reined in and that it can produce dangerous results. Okay. And so ultimately, what do you say? This is uh, Caesar trying to showcase his political IQ or his, his abilities? I mean, of course, he wants no, I don't to. Think so. he I don't want... think it's that because I think that would okay. be lost on most citizens, you know? Like most of them are just people going about, you know, they're carpenters, they're laborers. They don't really care about any of this, you know? Yeah. But I think he was trying to prove to his senatorial peers that this was a dangerous law that you know they needed to think more about. Why he? It's one of the more confusing issues because Cicero's speeches in this trial survive. He was the defense. Caesar's speeches as the prosecution do not survive. 
So we don't really know his fully thought out argument. We know Cicero's response to his arguments, and therefore we know some of his arguments. We don't know the whole thing, right? Right, yeah. So I guess there's some some guesswork yeah. uh, based on what we what we know from Cicero, assuming what Caesar would have had to have said for uh, Cicero to have that, that response and, yeah, and so on. Yeah. If you think it's confusing now, just wait. It's more confusing. So the judges are drawn by lots in this old trial. They maybe had to have been patrician. I don't know. But they're drawn by lots. And guess who gets chosen by lots to be a judge in the trial? Caesar and a distant cousin of his named Lucius Caesar. <laughs> really? So Caesar's basically uh, was chosen twice. Uh. <laughs> yeah. This is a uh, a trial that the judges just get to decide whether you're guilty or not. I think you have the right to appeal, but you know these two judges just kind of vote on whether you're guilty. Again, it's, it's archaic. This goes back to the time of the kings. This is not how the Romans did things. And I think that there's another element of, of something in here. You have the optimates always going on about tradition and how Rome should be the way it's always been and you know the old way is the best way. Well, here Caesar is using an older way than anything that they've ever used and you know shoving it right in their face. And they can't say, oh, this is radical reform, this is untraditional. It goes back to the very roots of Rome. But what can the, you know? They can't use their normal arguments against this, right? A uh, classic uh, kind of jujitsu uh, mode way of arguing. You put the the argument that your opponent uses on uh, on themselves. Exactly, uh, much like the you know optimists would sometimes suddenly take up the cause of the populares to try and you know steal their thunder out from under them and break their connection with the people. That's kind of what he's doing in a more complex way. Now. They hold this trial, and of course, Rabirius is found guilty by Caesar and his distant cousin, Lucius Caesar. So, Rabirius is then allowed to go to the Comitia Centuriata, the Committee of the Centuries. It's, uh, they do some of their voting for laws via the centuries, and he's allowed to appeal. And some of the more conservative senators get wind of this. Cicero, who's a great moderate, but still more probably on the conservative side, and this other great orator, Hortensius, who was kind of the king of the law courts, or king of the law courts before Cicero came around and dethroned him. But both of these great orators get up and speak in favor of Rabirius and try to save him from this fate of being crucified. And Rabirius goes on to say that, hey, like the main defense in all of this is that Caesar is so obviously biased. He's the one that was pulling the strings behind Titus Labianus. How can he be a judge? This guy is not hes not anywhere near unbiased in this whole thing. But the crowd is packed, likely, with Caesar's supporters. These are not you know, your ordinary, everyday Romans that are probably working right now. They're packed with Caesar's supporters, and they look like they're going to convict Rabirius of this. Now, why is that? I mean, what you know, you would think that they're. Why is it that the, that is packed with Caesar supporters rather than isn't the opposing party there? The optimists aren't they showing up? Yeah, this is a funny thing because you see this a lot. Both sides for big bills or big votes will always try to pack the forum with their supporters or their bullies. Or somebody like that. And inevitably, one side, I guess, organizes better and gets more people together, and they become the dominant voice in the crowd, right? 
But these crowds are never allowed to just form on their own. They're always trying to meddle with the crowds. Okay. And, and this becomes an even bigger deal later when they start bringing in kind of things. Oh, I won't give it away, but it becomes a, a bigger deal later in the Republic during Caesar's time. But yes, they start voting. And it looks for sure like they're going to convict him. And he's going to get crucified. And then suddenly, just before they're about to convict, there's a hill outside of Rome at the time called the Janiculum Hill. And on the Janiculum Hill is a, is a, is a red flag. And this red flag from the time of the kings of Rome was held up there to show that there were no enemies nearby. And if the flag was put down, it was a sign that there's enemies and get ready to defend the republic or at that time the kingdom. And if that flag goes down, these the type of trial that Caesar had done would have been held on the campus Martius, the, uh, the field of Mars, which is where they always lined up all their troops. And most of the people voting – in this trial would have been soldiers in the republic or in, in the in the kingdom. So if that flag goes down, you can't have all your soldiers sitting out on a field outside the city doing a trial. If there's a rival, you know, a, a, an enemy army coming at your city, you got to end the trial immediately and head back to the city and prepare to defend it. Right. So this flag goes down. And that means by these ancient archaic laws, the trial needs to at least halt, not end, but halt immediately. And the flag was put down by a guy, Quintus Caecilius Metellus Seller, long name. And it ends the trial and saves Riberius from being crucified. Now, we're not sure why he did this. None of the sources say it's possible. It's mentioned that Caesar may even have sought to kind of find a way out of the trial because he had proven his point about this law already or he felt that he had or had you know brought attention to it. But didn't want to see whatever point that he had made buried under a whole big thing about this guy getting crucified, right? He wasn't trying to crucify Riverius. He was just trying to prove his point about the law. So it's possible that he had a hand and asked this guy to put down the flag. And this was his way of saving face without letting this guy off the hook. Because after the, tr- after the flag goes down and the trial gets broken up, he could have rebrought the trial to the committee again. But he doesn't. He just leaves it be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you'd have to. I wonder how often this flag would actually go down if it was something that basically never happened and happened to yeah, why directly, directly with the trial. Then I, you know, sounds pretty suspicious to me. Oh no, no, it was a hundred percent done to end the trial. Okay. The question yeah. is why what, and who and who who is behind that? Right. Okay. I had said that this episode was going to be the my favorite or one of my favorite stories about Julius Caesar. It did not end up being. We didn't get there. But next episode, and we're going to release the first at least 10 episodes all at once. So, you know, if you're listening to this, the next episode's ready already. And it's going to be in that episode. Now that we've gotten through the confusing legal cases in the life of Julius Caesar, we can move on to some of the more exciting events. So Caesar decides to risk it all and gamble everything in our next episode to better his future. And the whole thing with his personal debts that grow ever higher comes to a head and uh, the reckoning point comes. So until then, feel free to rate us on the podcast store. We'd love to get five star ratings. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Still don't know exactly what I want to post, but I'd love to have followers, a way for us to interact with our fans and leave comments on the podcast store. 
or however you listen to podcasts, let you rate them, rate it or comment it. We would appreciate that. But thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.